There was a car accident in Tempe, Arizona, back in March of this year. It was about 10 o'clock at night, and a woman was walking her bike across the street, and an SUV going about 40 miles an hour hit her, and it killed her. The loss of life is always a tragedy. But if the story ended right there, it wouldn't be especially notable, because about 6,000 pedestrians get killed every year in the U.S. alone. There was something new about this accident, though. The person who was in the driver's seat of the SUV didn't have her hands on the wheel, she didn't have her feet on the pedals, and she was barely even looking at the road. Because this was an experimental, self-driving vehicle. Which made this accident in Tempe the very first of its kind. A pedestrian killed by an autonomous car. It was all over the national news. Before an Uber self-driving car crashes in a valley, all captured on Uber's news to be distracted in all of this The family of the woman who was killed immediately sued Uber, the company that owned and operated that vehicle. Uber pulled all its driverless cars off the road, in Tempe and in other cities. And suddenly, this technology that we've been talking about with a lot of optimism, the idea that it would improve mobility, it would transform our cities, and it would be environmentally superior. So now suddenly people are arguing about it with this undercurrent of fear and blame. And it's very reminiscent of a similar moment 120 years ago when a different new technology that was poised to transform our roads got tied up with tragedy. From Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson. From The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. Welcome to The Secret History of the Future. Tom, welcome to the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I brought you here to the corner of 74th Street and Central Park West. If you stand on that corner and look around now, you'll see it's very crowded. Cars, trucks, buses, bicycles. I saw a bulldozer come by just a moment ago. There's some quite fancy cars as well. This is the Upper West Side, obviously. (laughs) It is a a posh neighborhood. But I want you to imagine this corner as it would have looked back in 1899, when it was the scene of an inflection point in the history of transport. This was also a very crowded place, and it would have had streetcars coming up and down the middle. It would have had horse-drawn carriages, and it would have had pedestrians. And there would have been some automobiles back then, too. The car industry in the 1890s was essentially a sort of startup ecosystem. There are thousands of car makers. They're really, really small scale. Essentially, they're the companies that used to build carriages. So that meant just the variety of things you might see on the road, the different shapes and sizes that they would have. And some of them had people facing each other, and some of them you have a driver who sits on the front, and some of them have steering wheels, and some of them have levers. And and there's just this extraordinary variety of, of things because the whole industry is up for grabs, and no one knows how it's going to develop. I had no idea that electric cars were a big thing back then, but I guess there was a fleet of like 100 electric taxis in New York, and when they got to the end of their batteries, they would go back to the depot and swap out the battery. The battery weighed like 1,300 pounds. There was a lot of optimism around the automobile. It didn't create manure the way horses did. It also offered a promise of personal freedom. People thought it could improve mobility and transform daily existence. But the automobile was causing concern as well. Tom, can you guess what the speed limit was in New York City in 1899 for automobiles? Oh, I don't know, 10 miles an hour? You're very close. It was 8 miles an hour on straightaways and 4 miles an hour going around the corners. 1899 marked the first time an automobile driver was arrested for speeding. 
He was going 12 in an eight mile per hour zone. That's really, that's terrible. And he was pulled over by a cop and thrown in jail. Can you guess how the cop chased him down? Uh, by running? On bicycle, yeah. The, the cop chased him <laughs> down on bicycle and threw him in jail for speeding. Which foreshadowed the calamity that occurred later that same year at 74th and Central Park West. Henry Hale Bliss, 68 years old, a realtor. He's gone out on a date uptown. He's coming back on the streetcar with his lady friends. They're going to disembark at this corner. Henry Bliss alighted, as the newspaper reports of the time put it, and then paused to turn back and help his lady friend step from the streetcar to the street. And this is when tragedy struck. At that very moment, also coming south, overtaking the streetcar, is a taxi cab. It edged too close to the streetcar, and it hit Henry Bliss, rolling over him and crushing his chest and skull. When he died, Henry Bliss became the first pedestrian killed by an automobile in the United States. Just like the accident in Tempe last spring, this accident on the Upper West Side was the moment when the unbounded promise of the automobile met with the far less utopian reality. It all starts here. In 1999, on the 100th anniversary of Henry Bliss's death, his great-granddaughters laid roses on the ground at the spot where he died, and the Park Service put up a plaque at the corner to commemorate his death. Tom, I want you to focus on one phrase on this plaque, which is, it says, the place of the accident. Some activists for pedestrian safety groups who were on the scene that day in 1999 when the plaque was put up objected that it used that term accident to describe what happened because it seemed to absolve everybody of blame. It was just an accident. But if it wasn't just an accident, then who was responsible for that pedestrian death? In 1899, this had never happened before. So was it the driver's fault? His name was Arthur Smith, and they didn't really know how to treat him. First, they threw him into jail for murder, and then they let him out when he assured everyone that he hadn't intended to kill anybody. To be fair to Arthur Smith, the rules of the road were still pretty unclear at that point. Everyone was trying to figure out how to fit cars into existing street traffic, and the roadway itself hadn't been designed to accommodate cars, so it's not surprising that nobody was sure how to assign blame or indeed whether to blame anybody at all. One newspaper described the tragedy as unavoidable, like nobody could have stopped it from happening. But the Alton, Illinois Evening Telegraph, a paper that picked up the story a couple days later, was sure who was at fault. And it grabbed its readers by the lapels with this dramatic lead sentence. The automobile has tasted blood. If we look at the accident with the driverless car in Tempe this past spring, once again we've got a strange new thing on the road that's been involved in a fatal crash. We can see that even though the technology is different, people are asking a lot of the same questions they were asking back in 1899. Questions about safety, how road users should interact with each other, and in the event of an accident, who should bear the blame? Regardless of how people want to apportion blame, the reality is, is that it was a spectacular technology failure. That's Missy Cummings. My real name is Mary, but everyone calls me Missy. She was one of the U.S. Navy's first female fighter pilots back in the 1990s, at a time when the planes were having some catastrophic software problems. In the three years that I flew the F-18, one person a month died that I knew. 
And that's a lot of people dying who were highly trained experts in automated systems. And it was that experience that made me realize that we still had a lot of work to do uh, to design advanced systems. And so it inspired me to, to do what I'm doing today. Today, Missy Cummings is the director of the Humans and Autonomy Lab at Duke University. She studies the way humans interact with autonomous systems, like unmanned drones or automated trains or driverless cars. I asked her about the incident in Tempe. When, when you looked at what happened there, did you think about who was to blame or have you heard how blame is being apportioned by various folks for that incident? Well, it really depends on which part of the industry you're on. Just like in 1899, the question of how a new kind of vehicle should interact with other road users meant that people weren't sure who to blame. The Tempe police chief seemed to think that the pedestrian herself was at fault, claiming that she came from the shadows right into the roadway and that no one, human or machine, could have reacted fast enough to avoid hitting her. Some people preferred to blame the safety driver who was sitting in the autonomous car's driving seat and was theoretically supposed to grab the wheel in the event of an emergency. According to a police report, she was watching a video on her smartphone when the crash happened. This suggests that she was very confident that the car could drive itself without her close supervision. In this case, the presence of the automation made the safety driver complacent. And we've seen this time and time again across multiple industries. When you're asked to babysit automation, particularly automation in a car, it's very tedious and it's actually painful. People don't like having nothing to do. So if the driver had had no automation in the car, she likely would have been paying more attention. In a regular car, the human knows it's all on her. In a fully automated car of the future, with no steering wheel and no brake pedals, the human will know that she has no responsibilities at all. But in the meantime, we're in an awkward middle ground. The human is mostly passive, but she needs to be ready to suddenly leap back into action. You've got to respond in just seconds or maybe even a second or less. You simply may not have enough time to respond. And even if you can respond, it assumes that you're paying attention, which most of us are not. So that's actually why it's so dangerous, this period of time. But even if there'd been no safety driver behind the wheel, the car's computer really should have been able to handle this situation. Investigators found that the car's software detected something in the roadway six seconds before impact. But the computer wasn't sure what it was seeing. It got confused and it didn't slam on the brakes. When we say that these systems are going to prevent human error and thus human deaths and accidents... This is the softball of all softballs of problems. Very few people doubt that autonomous vehicles are coming. The adoption of the technology seems inevitable. But for now, the software isn't perfect. It still makes mistakes, which, as we've seen, can result in deaths. There are sensors, there are perception systems. They're still deeply flawed and in ways that we really don't understand and we're still learning about. In Tempe, the computer might have been confused by plastic bags that were hanging from the handlebars of the bicycle the pedestrian was walking across the road. And people who study autonomous car software have been discovering lots of other potentially disastrous flaws. There were a set of researchers um, about six months ago who showed that you could put some stickers on a stop sign 
and trick a computer vision system to see a 45-mile-per-hour speed limit sign. Then there were another set of researchers who wanted to best them and showed, "Ah, you don't even have to put all the stickers. You can just change one pixel. And if you know which one pixel to change, you can make a deep learning algorithm see something completely different. It's really messy when you're trying to train a computer, but the computer is on wheels, and it has to navigate all the messiness of real life and actual streets and intersections. The trouble is that on the one hand, you want to be sure that these cars work in this messy real world, not just in neat and clean simulations. And on the other hand, testing them in the real world on public roads isn't 100% safe. And this is the Catch-22 situation that makers of autonomous cars find themselves in. Unfortunately, the fallacy there is that you can test as exhaustive a range of conditions on a closed course or in simulation that you can in the real world. And the reality is that the real world continually surprises. This is Carl Yaknema, the president of Newtonomy, an autonomous car company. There are things we encounter on the roadway that we could never, practically speaking, invent. You know, we were one day driving on the road in Singapore and there was a fellow crossing the road in a chicken suit because there was a promotion for a new chicken restaurant that opened. We would not have, in our wildest, most fevered dreams over many, many years, have come up with a simulated scenario of a fellow in a chicken suit. And so you have to get on the road to ensure, somewhat paradoxically, that the system is safe. And it's not just guys in chicken suits or plastic bags hanging from bicycles. The fundamental problem here is that the rules we humans follow when we're driving are themselves ambiguous, so it's very hard to encode them into software. The rules of the road were written with humans in mind, of course, uh, not with machines, not for horses. Uh, Even the concept of um, something as basic and essential as yielding. Well, what does yielding mean? It means to give right of way. Well, what does right of way mean? I'll tell you, it means something different depending on context. It means something different depending on where you are, at what time, under what road conditions. So what lots of people in the industry would like is to define an unambiguous set of rules about how autonomous cars should behave and who's to blame if something goes wrong. Then you can simply ask, did the car follow the rules or not? If it did, then it's the rules that are at fault and not the car maker. But ultimately, we have to get as an industry to a formal and agreed upon uh, set of definitions for the rules of the road. We want to also ensure that these rules are comprehensive, that they cover all the cases. And, And by the way, human written rules of the roads typically do not. And they're not in conflict with each other. And so, again, I believe the way you address that is through mathematical tools and techniques. We're giving the benefit of the doubt right now to the autonomous vehicle industry to let them test their cars, even though they might still be dangerous to pedestrians. Because we're excited about the possibilities of this technology. So we want them to be able to improve it. But the question is whether we're being too deferential. Tom, there's this social concept of shared fate. So if we're riding on a bus together and there's a human driving the bus, we feel that we share our fate with that bus driver because we assume that he wants to live. He wants to drive the bus safely so he can go home to his loved ones at the end of the day. But if we take the human bus driver out of the equation and now a computer is driving the bus, do we feel like we share our fate with that computer? Do we trust that the computer wants to live and that it wants to go home to its loved ones and paint watercolors in retirement? 
because that's not what a computer is like. And blaming the computer, if it crashes us, doesn't seem to get us very far because we can't find the computer or throw the computer in prison. And the computer isn't going to feel any guilt about what it did. Yes, and we can think about this concept of shared fate in a broader way, not just inside the confines of that bus, but the idea that we as a society are all on this journey into the future together. And we're going to have to figure out what transport looks like, what our roads are going to look like, what our cities are going to look like. And the real question here is, what's the overall deal going to be between driverless cars and society at large? Cars rule the roads today because that was the deal we made with them a century ago. We let them drive all over us. And we have a chance to make a better deal with autonomous vehicles today. So how do we end up making that original deal with the automobile? How did we get here? I wanted to know why American cities in particular are so car-dominated. Peter Norton is a history professor at the University of Virginia who studied the early years of the automobile era. So I started looking in the sources from the time, particularly the newspapers, And I chanced upon a quite extraordinary effort to redefine walking as uh, a violation of all things decent. So let's go back 100 years or so to when cars were just starting to become common on American roads. How did people react to them initially then? There was a lot of initial hostility. The cars only moved a very small minority of people, and they got in the way of other people using streets. And they were also quite dangerous. Uh, they, they went faster than other vehicles of the time, and there was a lot of resentment. They were perceived as intruders. So the car industry came up with a strategy to fight back and blame pedestrians. In the Midwest, I mean Kansas, Missouri, and so on, the word Jay was used as a slur for a rural, uneducated person, a hick. And this word J was really handy. You could attach the word J to anything. A J town would be a backward town without any library or other cultural facilities. A J driver would be the farmer coming in from the country, paying no mind to whom he got in the way of. But shortly thereafter, they came up with this word J walker for the pedestrian who got in their way as drivers. Car makers and dealers and drivers clubs got together and said, we can use this word, jaywalker, to discourage people from walking in the streets. It's not just to prevent pedestrians from getting hit. It's also intended to redirect the blame from the car and the driver to the pedestrian. But beginning around 1912, you start to see it being used to actually bar pedestrians from access in the streets. These initial attempts to ban jaywalking were resented and resisted. For example, there are accounts of women hitting police officers with their parasols when they tried to pull them out of the roadway. What's interesting is that the industry responds not by demanding stronger enforcement, but by lobbying and organising publicity campaigns to try to change people's minds and make them feel embarrassed if they break the rules. All of this shifted the perceived ownership of the roadways away from pedestrians and towards cars during the 1920s. And it's been that way ever since. So while people were having this debate about jaywalking and whose fault it was when accidents happened, the car was reshaping the world in all sorts of other ways that people weren't paying as much attention to. It was creating sprawl around cities. There was congestion building up. And it was making people less likely to use public transport. 
And it's not completely random how these things happen. The, the car industry had a, an interest in things being the way they are now. They wanted to sell cars. So things like rules that require shopping malls to have a certain number of parking spaces for every store, those are the sorts of rules that the, the industry fought for. And the question is, are we making the same kinds of mistakes today? Are we fixated on the safety issues around autonomous vehicles at the expense of thinking hard about some of these broader issues that they might raise? And I think there is a danger here because, obviously, if you can't make autonomous cars safe, then they're just not going to be allowed onto the roads. And if we can, then suddenly the issues that are going to matter, it's going to be all of these other broader impacts. So I'm a bit worried that we may just be kind of sleepwalking into a world where we haven't thought that through until it's too late. Where, where would you say the balance of power is right now between governments and advocacy groups and the autonomous vehicle industry? Oh, I think industry has most of it. Beth Osborne works at Transportation for America. It's a group that gathers local politicians and civic leaders who want to influence the future of transport in their cities and towns. A, they're, they're big and they're organized. They have a lot of money. But also, people are just excited about the new technology, and understandably so. We are a, a, a nation full of innovators that get excited about um, a, big, a big change on the horizon. Can you paint a vivid picture for me of your nightmare scenario of what our cities look like when AVs are all over the roads? Yes. My nightmare scenario, which I can visualize perfectly, is sitting in the middle of standstill traffic in which I am the only human being there. And all the other cars are clogging up the roads, but there are no people in any of them. That's my nightmare. AVs, the notion is um, is that we're going to find ways to share vehicles and share rides, and they're all going to be electric, and uh, and everything's going to work beautifully and be more efficient than it ever has been in the past. However, it doesn't have to work that way, and there is at least as much a chance that it won't as that it will. Osborne thinks that a lot of the first wave of autonomous cars on the road might be privately owned and that people sending their cars back and forth in and out of cities to drop them off and pick them up could wreak havoc on traffic patterns. A lot of people are excited about AVs because they believe that we will not have to have as much parking in downtown areas anymore, and we can put what are now parking lots into more productive income-generating use. Great idea. So now I send my AV all the way back home and double the, the amount of rush hour. It has to come back to me at the end of the day. That's one option. The other option is it needs to stay close because I don't want to wait 40 minutes for my car to get through congestion to get to me. I want it more at the ready, in which case it doesn't reduce parking. And that's an empty vehicle traveling around to meet me when I'm done with work. Decisions about what streets would look like in the early 1900s were being made before people were really aware it was happening what our streets will look like in an autonomous car future is still to be determined. You could put up jersey barriers along the roadways to make sure that nobody could cross the street and surprise the AV. And in doing so, you create an environment that takes all the activity off the street. The deeper question here is, what are streets for? Do they exist to help vehicles move around quickly and easily? 
Are they places for people where you can stroll around, meet friends, and get coffee or go shopping? We spent most of the last 30 years trying to repair the damage that we created by being so myopic in the focus on moving vehicles quickly. We've started recreating roadways that are open to all users. Most every local leader is is talking about trying to create complete streets and town centers and gathering places in their community. We don't want to stop that trend. It is the way most communities were built throughout the entirety of human existence. We had a brief moment in time of about 50 years where we tried to break from that and for the most part discovered that it didn't create what we wanted and we don't want to reverse the progress we've made in, in moving back into creating great places. So this is the streets of New York in 1899. As we stood on the corner of 74th Street and Central Park West, we pulled up a video of what the streets would have looked like when Henry Bliss was killed. And you can see there's a wide variety of vehicles. There's a um, there's a streetcar going by. There's another one in the background that's being pulled by a horse. There's an electric trolley in the front, a yeah. horse-drawn trolley in the back. And there's lots and lots of people on the street. There was this idea that the, the street was a shared space and everyone had to get along with everyone else. And it's before the period, and this only really happens in the 1920s, when it is decided that cars are going to be privileged, they're going to be given a special status, and everyone else has to get out of the way of them. The other interesting thing about this little clip here is that we can't see any cars. Um, it's, it's all streetcars and carriages and, and things like that, but I can't see a single automobile in this clip. There's lots of different ways that you can do transport. And the way that we've done it here, at least in America, is we've got these massive parking garages everywhere. We've got interstates that cut through neighborhoods. There's lots of different ways that our streets could look right now, right? It didn't have to be exactly like this. I mean, I've been to Vietnam, and if you go there, the streets are dominated by motorbikes, right? And when you want to cross... You, you think that you're going to wait for a break in the motorbikes and then sprint across the street, but that's not what you do. You just sort of calmly wade into the middle of the street and the motorbikes flow around you. They've got a completely different understanding of what a road should look like. If you talk to people in the industry building autonomous cars, they, they say they're driven to do this by the wonderful vision that we have, that we can make cars safer, we can make cities quieter, less polluted, we have less congestion, less time wasted sitting in traffic. But I can't help but remember what people said about cars in the 1890s. And they said, when we switch from horses to these new horseless carriages, there'll be much less pollution because it hadn't occurred to them that carbon dioxide emissions from petrol engines was going to be a problem. No one had realized that at the time. They thought it would make cities quieter because they assumed that the number of vehicles would be about the same as the number of horse-drawn carriages and they wouldn't be going clip-clop, clip-clop. And they assumed that this would be safer, there'd be fewer accidents, there'd be less traffic because cars are smaller than a horse and a carriage put together. So they basically assumed that everything would be the same. And today we're making that assumption again, really. We're saying everything's going to be kind of the same as it is today. But actually what happens when you take away the driver is that it changes the whole dynamic of the system. And if autonomous cars really are as cheap and efficient as people say they are, then people are going to want to travel a lot more. And then you're going to have 
lots more vehicles on the road and you're going to get you're going to get traffic and you're going to say well how are we going to power these things without producing more carbon dioxide emissions even if they're electric we still need power stations to generate the electricity so i think that's the the danger that in in reaching out for this vision we fail to appreciate the ways that moving towards it will actually change what happens and change the way people behave Tom, it seems like there's a lot of different ways that this could go. So for you, what is sort of the most dystopian future you can imagine? Well, it's a sort of nightmarish cityscape where you've got these fenced-off lanes for high-speed AVs, but you have to pay top dollar to be able to ride in them. And everyone else is stuck in in traffic. It's um, it's AV traffic. It's automated, you know, self-driving traffic, but it's still traffic. Um, and then you might also have this phenomenon where some neighbourhoods, some routes, some whole towns might not be reachable um, unless you're a member of a special AV network. And there's segregation, in effect, where, um, where AV networks control where people go. It's a whole new sort of gated community, I guess. Um, all right, well, let's go in the other direction, a sunnier vision. What what do you see as the sort of utopian future of AVs? Well, this is the, the future that you get from urban planners and sort of the, the companies building these vehicles. So they imagine these wonderful cities where you don't have to have parking anymore. So you've got a lot more parks and green spaces and you've got no traffic jams. You've got no pollution. You've got no accidents. Uh, nobody owns a car anymore. You just kind of call one when you need one. Uh, you've got seamless integration with public transport. So uh, they take you to stations and you, you know, just as the train arrives and you get on the train and then you get off the train and another vehicle picks you up. Uh, you have this wonderful kind of transport equity because you can do things like subsidize rides to parts of town that have bad public transport or no public transport, give them more opportunities and uh, and so on. So you just get much more um, equality in access to transportation and you get a much more pleasant urban environment. And that's the sort of dream that everyone has in mind. Okay, now let's split the difference. If it's neither the best possible outcome or the worst possible outcome, what's somewhere in the middle? I think we'll probably get both of those outcomes in different places. What's really going to happen is different cities uh, around the world and different countries are going to do experiments. We saw this with the car in the 20th century. Essentially, some places are going to go for the sort of utopian vision and they're going to actually have to enforce it. I mean, in places like Singapore, I think, you will get the government saying, right, we're not going to allow human piloted cars into the, you know, this part of the city anymore and we're going to make you use these cars instead of having your own. So um, I think you probably can get to that vision, but it may require quite a lot of coercion to do it. Uh, the other end of the spectrum, I think you might get the dystopian view um, in places that have a, a very laissez-faire approach. They say, look, we're going to just stand back and let people do whatever they want to do. So today, when your city has an argument about whether there should be congestion charging or you know whether there should be higher taxes on Uber or, or whatever, it's really all of those little decisions that are going to shape the future. And that's why I think it's really important that we don't just think about it in a tactical way, but we step back and say, what's the final vision that we want? And and how are all these decisions that we're making today uh, contributing to that? Because there isn't a single future here. There are lots of possible options and we need to sort of stand up and fight for the one that we want. I guess the important thing to remember is that none of this is set in stone. Just like in 1899, it wasn't preordained that the automobile was going to be king of the road. Central Park West didn't have to look the way that it looks now. We just let this accumulation of small decisions happen over time. We have a hundred or a thousand different autonomous vehicle futures. I think we, we have to decide what future we want and recognize that the technology is a tool we can use for the future we choose 
instead of as this inevitable future that we have to line up behind. I'm Seth Stevenson. And I'm Tom Standage. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and Kate Holland. Editorial help was provided by Gabriel Roth. The senior producer for Slate Podcasts is TJ Raphael. The executive producers are Steve Lichtai for Slate Podcasts and Anne McElvoy for The Economist. Next week on The Secret History of the Future... It's sort of delightful that the first network in history also had the first hack in history. That... uh, Attacks are as old as systems, and that any system that can be subverted eventually will be. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 